Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 109, our first Universal Congress of LP. It's uh, it's known as Joe Biza and the Universal Congress of, but they drop ended up eventually dropping the Joe Biza. So let's call it the Universal Congress of Brent. I think. Sure. And we've got a special guest. Yeah, Jason Kahn is on the podcast today. Great guy. Yeah. When I was listening to it, I was like, man, we're so lucky. We get these people that, you know, give their time to us. And then they give us all these amazing nuggets on the interview. Like there was so much stuff that he mentioned that I need to research now. It's insane. (laughs) Right? I know. I'm the same way, man. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much stuff I need to listen to now. It's awesome. Yep. Hit me with some spiels, man. Okay. I thought I'd start by letting you know that I'm wearing my giant music snob socks tonight that you bought me. (laughs) (laughs) Wearing them with pride, right? Oh, yeah, man. Like, they really breathe. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just like a giant music snob. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, I got two spiels for you. One you might have saw, if you didn't hold on to your hat, Ryan, the freaked original soundtrack is coming out on vinyl. Did you see this? I did not, no. But that means we're going to get some blind idiot God, right? Yeah, talk about timing, man. So if anybody missed this, we talked about this soundtrack on episode 104, our blind idiot God episode, uh, because they're on this soundtrack for Freaked. It's being released uh, for the first time ever, not just first time ever on vinyl. It's never been released before. By that label Death Waltz Recording Company. They do all those kind of tricked out high-end soundtracks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. Now, what was... There was something else on that, though. Like, are they going to have the Iggy song on it? The Iggy song is on it. It's a double LP. Yes. Uh, I got all excited when I saw it. I don't usually don't care about colored wax, but they did, like, this nuclear waste green type shit in like clear wax but then that's like super limited there's only like 20 copies of that one i saw but it the packaging look looks great um david daniels who did that amazing title sequence for the movie he, oh yeah he, he did the artwork for this double lp kevin kinners is I, th- I think is the guy's name he did the score but it's also got butthole surfers on it blind idiot god with henry rollins i think a couple other blind idiot god tracks uh, and they're doing a screening in Hollywood of the movie, uh, which will have happened already by the time this episode posts. Uh, a bunch of the actors are going to be there. Uh, the special effects team is going to be there. This is all for a Q&A. Uh, they're scream- screening a 35mm print of the film. Uh, that composer, Kevin Kinner, is going to be there. Alex Winter and Tom Stern, the co-directors and writers. Uh, Henry Rollins is going to be at it. Paul Leary from the Butthole Surfers, I think, is playing at it. And I'm really, really hoping that the whole thing gets filmed and then used for some sort of Blu-ray special edition of the movie. Yeah, you'll be all over that too, right? Oh, I'll be all over that. <laughs> I'm a little worried about not getting my hands on this con- this soundtrack, though. I think that Death Waltz stuff goes out of print, like, the day it gets released. You mean just in general or the Nuclear Waste Edition? In general. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's that's too bad. Yeah. I think it's kind of hard to get some of it. It might just be hard to get it up here. Okay. I have a recommend for you, Ryan. 
Oh man, okay. It's a scene comp on Hozak Records called We Were Living in Cincinnati. Have you heard of this? I have. Yeah. Have you did you buy it? Have you heard it? Not yet. Okay. Uh but but it is on my radar. You know I love scene comps. You know I love like scene comps from the 70s and 80s in particular. Love that stuff. Yeah. It's subtitled Punk Underground Sounds from Ohio's Queen City, 1975 to 82. And it's compiled by Peter Aaron of the Chrome Cranks, who apparently yeah. amassed a large personal collection of records and demos from the area. He does the liner notes. They're great. Uh, tons of photos. A really cool uh, scene family tree. And the sticker on the front says, similar to the Red Snurts comp from nearby Bloomington, which I haven't heard, but I would like to. A hot batch of isolated punk, post-punk, no-wave, new-wave obscurities. And it's got 15 free bonus downloads with the vinyl. It's a great companion to the Punk 45 records that kind of cover that area. Yeah. And we're kind of reminded me of that Colorado comp Rocky Mountain Low that um yes. that Joseph Pope helped Dalton Rasmussen put together uh, because yep. it's kind of all over the place it's nice and eclectic um some of my faves tell me if you've heard of any of the, these bands my faves off of it were uh the Ed Davis band they have a song called Asshole I can almost guarantee you some of these tracks are on like Killed by Death and stuff like that yeah, I bet. Uh, a band called The Rave Ends, like the Ravens, but it's R-A-V-E-Ns. Hmm. Song called I Feel So Suicidal. A Rector Set is a band on there. Yeah, they're cool. And my favorite is a track I've heard before. The only one that I thought for sure I've heard this before is the band called The Customs with this song called Long Gone. Yeah, that looks really... I, it's been on my radar for over a month anyways but uh, i just haven't taken the time to seek it out seek it out i'm gonna seek it good recommend seek and destroy that shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep that's it those are my spiels okay i got a couple of quickies myself one is on the theme of recommends i wanted to give you some street cred oh yeah on um on our i I think it was like our best of 2019 episode. You gave me a bunch of recommends. I'm working my way through them. But the one that uh, I went to first, because I knew it was kind of like an easy, this was a gimme for sure. Um, I went to that Imperial Wax album, oh, yeah. Gastwork Saboteurs. And yeah, thanks for telling me to to prioritize and listen to that one because um, I'm definitely digging it. So oh, good. good one. Street cred. You got some. Thank you. I, yeah. I checked out a few of yours too. I checked out Ventura. Oh yeah. I think the album's called Ad Matres. Correct. And I checked out that Pile record because it was your number one. It's awesome. Yeah, I liked them both. Oh yeah, nice. How much did you like them though? I liked Pile better. That uh, Ventura band kind of reminded me of, you know what? A few tracks almost reminded me of later era Wipers. Yep. A little bit. Yep. Which I liked. Yep. Uh, I, I totally see that too. They've, they've got like a weird mix, but it works. This album is really good at Matres. I like their prior album better, but this is a great album. And that Pile record, the double LP, awesome. So yeah, we, we definitely uh, picked out some good ones, I think. Um, here's, my, here's my second spiel. It's um, 
it's about some books that I picked up. Oh, so Ryan's book report. Yep, that's right. Um, starting off 2020 with some literature. Um, have you ever heard of an author called David Ensminger? Hmm, not off the top of my head. Yeah, I, I had not either, and I was surprised when I when I kind of I, I saw a notification actually from the Discord Records webpage that a book by David was available again for sale on their website called Out of Step, Washington, D.C. Punk Interviews. And so I was like, oh, tell me more. So I went and checked that out. It looked cool. And then I was like, I wonder if this guy has written anything else. And he has. So he's got this one book, Washington, D.C. Punk Interviews. He also has another one called Out of the Basement, from Cheap Trick to DIY Punk in Rockford, Illinois. Oh, wow. He has another one called Austin Punk Invasion, with uh, and it covers the bands Terminal Mind, Big Boys, The Huns, The Offenders, The Dicks, MDC, a bunch of other lesser-known bands. He also has two books called Rock and Roll Decontrol, Volume 1 and 2. It's a punk pick and flyer collection and wow yeah it's all over the place and got some um really popular like well-known um iconic bands and pictures and again like some really lesser known stuff and then brent there is a book that he uh he has called beneath the shadows of tsol no way way and um they're all pretty skinny books like i'm talking like 100 to 150 pages or whatever and they're all reasonably priced you can pick them all up for probably all six of them for about 60 bucks actually um but when i caught on to this guy i was like man this guy's put out some stuff i can't believe i've never heard of him and i was like i bet you brant would either have this tsol book or want to get it Oh, I want to get it. Yeah. yeah. I've actually been digging a bunch of TSOL lately. I know I know you're more of a Grisham guy, but I've been digging that Revenge album. It's not bad. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's... That one and Change Today are really good. Yeah. The, po- the post-Jack stuff. After that, it kind of went off the rails. People really are hard on the post-Jack stuff, but I, I'm digging that Revenge album, and I'm looking forward to reading this TSOL album. I finished the Flea book. I'm on one of my books on the damned and then this tsol book is up next man i was listening to that new comp by the damned today do you know what no which is that one it's called black is the night and uh i mean i've got all the damned stuff like there's one new song on here but the price was right and i mean i've got already got three or four damned comps but this one's really cool because it I think there's stuff off just about every album, if not all of them. And I don't know if it's been like remastered or remixed, but I was, you know, a lot of these tracks I've heard, I've been hearing for 30 years and I was picking stuff out in them. Huh. I wasn't even aware. I hadn't noticed before. It's a really good comp. It's definitely, it's called the definitive anthology and it definitely is. Huh. And I mean, it's 
it doesn't follow them chronologically. So like the first four songs, like it goes love song, wait for the blackout. Then it goes to generals off of strawberries. I just can't be happy today. Bad time for Bonzo. And then it goes to democracy, which is off that. Um, oh, what's it called? It's the one that came out on Nitro Records. Oh, Grave Disorder? Grave Disorder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Does, but does it have any of like any tracks off of those controversial Da- like weird damned albums like i'm all right jack and the beanstalk or what's that other one um not of this earth and isn't there one about that's the that's the same album or molten lager well those first two you mentioned are the same album okay. with a different title and molten lager is a live album that joe keithley from doa put out on his label of that album it's basically that album from that you just mentioned the one i have is called not of this earth it's not a bad album but the live version molten lava they play like they play the song the that entire album like front to back and it's way better i thought there was some sort of controversy on those records like the captain's not even on them or something like that dave vanian uh, dave vanian had like this pickup band or something I can't remember the history. I mean, well, the Captain Sensible was out of the band for like Fiendish Shadows and anyways, he's not on those albums. Yeah. This is why I'm reading that Damned book right now. I need to bone up on my my Damned history. Those are good albums. Like there is not a bad Damned album in my opinion. And some are just amazing. Like when I, I, they're one of those bands I've been listening to for so long. I don't go back to them as often as I should, but like when some of these, when like Wait for the Blackout came on or um, uh, Melody Lee, like it just, the power of music to just take you back, you know? Should we uh, get into the power of the Universal Congress of? Yeah, let's do it. History lesson, part one. So Brent, I wanted to start our discussion of the Universal Congress of with some words from the spaceman. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So we actually have had the Universal Congress of on the show before on the No Age Comp. And that was episode 102. It had uh, the song Chasing, which is on this LP that we're, we're covering on the show. But people might recall that uh, the spaceman, Michael Whitaker, wrote these killer uh, descriptions of each of the bands on the back of the No Age comp. And let, let me lay some spacemen on you for the Universal Congress of. Go. Quote, the Universal Congress has convened. On the agenda is the pure spirit of bop and the wild abandon of the blues. Presided over by ex-Saccharin Trust guitar whiz Joe Biza, this Congress gets the job done wielding the big sticks of John Coltrane and Howlin' Wolf. They weave huge tapestries that never fail to exert a mild case of deja vu. Live, the big band beat of the Congress propels Joe and new saxophone player Steve Moss to long-forgotten bursts of musical power. Like Saccharine Trust before them, they make the bridge between the radicalness of bop and the radicalness of punk a little easier to cross and it's so true funny that he mentioned steve moss though because he is not on this album and wasn't in the band when this was recorded but he must have been in the band when the no age comp came out must have been yeah 
great stuff from Michael Whitaker. I have something from the Spaceman too that I found in an SST ad for this album. Let's do it. Right. There's a little bit of crossover. Rising like a worldly snake. Get it, Ryan? A worldly snake? Yeah. World broken and we became snakes. Little oh, okay. saccharine tr- trust references there. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. See how keen the spaceman is? So keen. Yeah. Rising like a worldly snake from the ashes of saccharine trust, Joe Biza, the man who evokes the true bop spirit just standing around, punches his universal congress right into his brain. The congress will simultaneously pull your head apart and put it back together just right. The two songs on this inviting record are a must for all fans of masterful guitar playing. Yeah. I mean, this record is is out there, but it's great. I loved it. And I will I'll say I was a very, very late comer to the Universal Congress of. Yeah, me me too. Like I'm not gonna say, oh, you know, I've been into the Universal Congress of since, you know, high school or even my twenties. Uh the first record I bought by them is actually the next one, I believe, called This is Mechalotics or Mechalotics. I picked that up at uh, Amoeba in San Francisco, like in my probably mid, maybe earlier mid 30s. So I was really, really late coming to this band. But when we did the No Age comp and that track came on, I was like, oh man, I'm so ready for the Universal Congress of now. Yeah. You know what's funny is we picked that song for our ballot result off of No Age. <laughs> so this, by mal- my calculation, when we put on A Certain Way tonight, it'll be the f- only time we've inducted an entire album <laughs> into, <laughs> into the ballot result. Yeah. And this track will actually have to be, actually, I only have it on vinyl. I do you have it that's on? The, that's the only format it came out on, as far as I can tell. Okay. Because I was thinking when I was listening to it, man, it would be nice to have it on CD so I could listen to that track like a certain way uninterrupted, right? Well, when we make our compilation tape, we'll just pause it, flip the record over, and unpause it and keep recording. Because nice. we're, we're going to have extra space on that comp tape, too, because we don't have any painted willy from the last two weeks. <laughs> exactly exactly we can fit it on there yeah so i mean again i'm very late to universal congress of i really dug this record i was pumped for it after the no age and i I can't wait to get into the rest of their records and they they put out a bunch even after sst but when i was listening to this record i was like i'm not surprised that joe biza needed to go beyond saccharine trust yeah not surprised I found a few a few things about that. So this is from a July 2009 article on this website, Ultimate Guitar, where he was getting interviewed about um, the Unknown Instructors album. And the interview is by Amy Kelly. And he says, The only band I was in at that time was Saccharine Trust. If I had some... They're talking specifically about like the band breaking up or whatever. If I had some new ideas I wanted to, per- to pursue, it would have to be worked into that format. I'm almost sure that the others felt the same way. At some point, it seemed to me that it became a bit forced. Our individual intentions became more important than the music itself. I went my own way, 
and formed Universal Congress of, which was a kind of punk jazz direction. When I listen now to that period of Saccharine Trust, it sounds to me like proto-Universal Congress of. Huh. And if you're remembering, Ryan, or if anybody wants to go back, we interviewed Joe Biza for our episode 48, We Became Snakes, the Saccharine Trust album, and we do talk about Universal Congress of. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, like, when you look up what some people have written about the band though they they do often mention like a uh this is like well i guess the thing that caught my attention is they keep mentioning punk with universal congress of like even on the discog site what do they say here their earlier work on sst had a bit more of a punk edge i mean not this record for me not this record no no this, this record, they're being very improvisational, very free, but not free like free jazz. Yeah. It's Are you sure they're not talking about earlier Saccharine Trust? No, this is what it says about Universal Congress of. It says their earlier work on SST had a bit more of a punk edge while their later albums on Enemy were more solidly jazz. That's just lazy. Yeah, I think it's lazy, sloppy writing. But yeah. I, I saw that reference or referencing them as like you know punk free jazzers and stuff i saw that a few times while looking them up the worst thing i read the absolute worst um was from ira robbins in the trouser press record guide did you see that one yeah i read it too yeah it's the first time that i re- like i read a review and i was like that is so lame you've got it so wrong there's uh, been a few of his but yeah yeah for me i mean he's i can usually see a, gr- a grain of truth, I guess, into what he's written about. But what did he call them? He called them, he said it was 19 enervating minutes. And enervating is the opposite of energizing. Enervating minutes of four guys dicking around formlessly in the studio. He's specifically talking about this record, not the yeah. rest of them. He he does go on to praise the other ones. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I guess I'm, I was just ready for this. And and I and I I did dig this album, and I was thinking like, why do I why do I like this album? Why do I like albums like this? They're kind of like a palate cleanser for me, I guess. I don't know. Did you look them up in Pop and Rock and the Pop Narcotic? Yes. Hit me with that because that will be a perfect antidote to uh, to Ira Robbins. Yeah. So Joe Carducci, uh, he had two. Well, there's a few spiels, but the one I liked first off is where he says. While it's true that guitarist Joe Biza was attempting to make Universal Congress of less daunting for listeners than Saccharine Trust had been, the move to open the sound up was also driven by the appetite of a musician to become more musical as his skills improved. And he's really talking about bands that change their sound or musicians that change their sound over time. I find it interesting that Joe says Universal Congress of is less daunting than Saccharine Trust. But again, maybe I'm thinking too much about this album. He says, though, of Universal Congress of, quote, alongside Gin, Joe Biza is preeminent when it comes to guitar playing as personal language since the punk incident of 1976. His work in Saccharine Trust was more rock in its role, whereas here in Biza's next band, he is very much part of a bop-inspired, though rock-fueled combo. 
This development, whereby the guitarist of an important late 70s, early 80s rock band put together a more musically flexible band featuring an interface with jazz flex was, if not common, at least noticeable as a pattern. And I mean, his thesis is that there's this thread throughout Rock and the Pop Narcotic about the evolution of musicians, right? But he puts Universal Congress of up there with a number of bands that kind of evolved. He, ta- he mentions Ed Kepper. Yeah. Went, went from the Saints to Laughing Clowns. He mentions Greg Ginn, who went from Black Flag to Gone. He's saying, like, Universal Congress of was a natural progression. Here's a thing I found on this website called OutsideLeft.com by this guy Paul Lamont, where he's interviewing Joe Biza. And Joe says, I'm attempting to condense all the things I like about jazz music into short, bite-sized pieces. Punk jazz. Jazz music for the uninitiated, but at the same time, jazz for the experimental. Now, this is a later interview, so the the short, bite-sized pieces, I think, are to come. Yes. This is not a short, bite-sized pieces, but the the little passages are kind of short and bite-sized, I would say. I found a cool article um, by this guy, Ed Huarta, who played in the Jack Brewer Band. He played on both of those awesome New Alliance releases by Jack Brewer. And he played drums on the one of the greatest rock albums ever made, The Lazy Cowgirls' Ragged Soul. He has this blog called jackaboutguitars.com and he has a, an interview with Joe Biza called Joe Biza's Sonic Rain. And here's Joe. Someone once said in an interview that my guitar playing is like my drawing. Remember he did the cover art for Buzzer Howell under the influence of Heat? and also the October Faction record. Yeah. Joe Biza goes, it has that same expressiveness. The notes I play are sort of staccato and a little jaggedy, not really clear. And when I draw, I draw the same way with ink. I draw with lines, sort of impressionistic, the same as the guitar notes. Hmm. And here's the thing about his influences. He says, James Blood Almer. The first time I heard him, it was like, what the fuck is that? Early James Blood, Blood Almer, the real outside stuff. Even though I don't play like him, it inspired me to do that free guitar style. Guys like that inspired my tone. Also, like horn players, not too much rock. I'm not too much of a rock and roller. I try to be, but I don't have it in me. I like Wayne Shorter a lot. I got into Brazilian music, then I said I got to get into rock music. So I got into rock, like the evolution of rock music, during the Black Flag tours. They were getting into metal, and I just didn't like that. They were going, Dio! I was like, I gotta go outside right now. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like me. Yeah. A few more things, Ryan. Here's from an LA Times article from 1989 by this guy, Don Snowden. Stage diving and slam dan- dancing to songs by jazz innovator Ornette Coleman. That's what the California Quartet UCO encountered at its recent date in Muscogan, Michigan. Joe Biza. It was Muscogan punk rock youth and we thought, man, how are we going to go over with these kids? What are they going to do? Leave or yell at us? But they had a great time. The rowdy audience wasn't the only type of crowd the group encountered on tour. It also shared a bill here with jazz saxophonist Odeon Pope last month, and tonight it figures to face its unusual hometown mix of arty types and hardcore kids when it headlines Raji's in Hollywood. That wide range 
is fine with UCO, which chose its unwieldy name to reflect the open-ended nature of its music. The initial problem facing Baiza wasn't finding the common link in the material. It was connecting with like-minded musicians in an underground rock scene that never prized improvisation or contemporary jazz. I just didn't know if it was going to be possible, said Baiza. After I quit Saccharine Trust, I thought I knew what I wanted to do. Improvisation with a real edge to it, along with some funky and bluesy stuff. But I had to find the right people to do it. Did you read any of the stuff from Dave Lang's Perfect Sound Forever? I read that a long time ago. I didn't go back to it. That's a good reminder. I should read that. Well, there's two things. I didn't pull anything out of it, but if anybody wants to read a great interview with Joe Biza, he has one on there. Uh, but here's from his like overview of the SST stuff. Yes. Universal Congress of, a band most fitting of the Hidden Gems category. Yeah. All three of their SST, SST LPs are very different, though for starters... One can't go past their self-titled debut. Each player is used to his maximum potential, creating a mind-bending array of organic, twisted, psyched out, and I'd be tempted to go out on a limb here and say that this is one of the greatest, most hideously ignored independent rock masterpieces of the 80s. Whoa. Unfortunately, it was just released at the wrong time in history. Believe you me, if this was released today in a world obsessed with weird-ass psych obscurities, 70s Miles Davis, and the odd Krautrock disc here and there, you'd have to avoid the stampede of hipster geeks leaping over the counter at the local record store trying to get their hands on this. <laughs> I think he's got a good point there. I think he does too. I think, yeah. I think like if this came out and it had, you know some reasonable press people would be all over it right now oh yeah if this came out and said king gizzard and the lizard wizard on it people would be losing their minds trying to get it yeah agreed should we kick it to the interview yeah let's hear from jason okay we're joined on the podcast today by jason con jason thanks for being on the show sure my pleasure now i'm wondering if you can take us back to your childhood where did where did you grow up I grew up in Los Angeles. I was born in New York and moved out to Los Angeles when I was four. So that's basically where I grew up. Um, first, San Valley, and then when I was older, I moved across the hill towards Hollywood, downtown, okay. that kind of... When did you start playing drums? Quite late, actually. I started when I was um, 21. Oh. Um, when I was, I was actually in London for a year as an exchange student at the university, and... Um, that's where I started playing, um, kind of got swept up and all that, you know, there was a lot of great music happening at that time, and I got swept up and all that. But I'd been going to clubs pretty much around 77 or so in Los Angeles, and then I finally got around to playing myself, yeah. So you were you were around that age in the, in the late 70s? Well, I was born in 1960, so okay. um, I guess I remember hearing punk rock around when I was in high school, I had a friend come back from London. He kind of ditched high school and he went to London and he came back the next year and he had like earrings and stuff. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> and at the same time, um, there was uh, a radio show in Los Angeles called Rodney on the Rocks. Right. Yep. And, um, and he was playing, you know, all the new stuff, 
and interviewing artists. He would just like call up the Ramones or something and start talking with them. Um, and so that's where I heard most of that music. And then a bit later, I started going out to clubs myself. You know? So we're talking about first wave punk rock was kind of your thing. Yeah, I would say that and also kind of post-punk what happened around 77, 78. Um, I mean, for me, that was the the best years were middle, mid-70s to the early 80s, yeah. So when you started playing drums, did you take lessons or were you all self-taught? Well, actually, I did take lessons. I, I um, When I was in London, I had a year of lessons with a, a man there. Actually, I was just learning snare drum. But I also played people there. I had a set I bought when I arrived. Okay. I was jamming with people, and I played in a theater piece. And then when I got back to L.A., I, I took more lessons and continued playing in bands. I guess I took around three years of lessons. But after that, I was mostly just on my own. Okay. And like, what were your first bands that you played in? Um, when I got back to Los Angeles in 82... Um, I was playing just with some friends. We didn't play out that much. Um, we didn't make any recordings. I had a girlfriend. She played guitar, and a friend of hers played bass, and I played drums. And uh, we played maybe one or two times out. And then after that, um, somehow I got hooked up um, with the leaving trains. A friend of mine was <laughs> supposedly managing them. Okay. Uh, a guy I was actually, um, he was the manager of the Dream Syndicate, and I'd been on tour with them, their first uh, U.S. tour. With the Dream and Syndicate? this friend of mine asked, yeah. Oh, cool. And a friend of mine, yeah, that was managing them um, and also managing the tour, asked me to come along to help out um, as kind of a roadie and assistant. So, so somehow he got hooked up with the trains and was... Um, helping them or managing them. I'm not sure at this point what his exact role was. But in any case, they didn't have a regular drummer at that time. So somehow I got in the position where I could um, try out with them. And yeah, it seemed to work out. I believe you were a member of the band by the time Well Down Blue Highway came out and you for sure played on the Kill Tunes LP. Exactly. Well Down Blue Highway was was being recorded as um, at the time I first got in touch with them. So it was pretty clear um, that the drummer at that time, who was, I believe... Um, it was Terry Graham, I'm sorry. I believe. Terry Graham, right, from the Gun Club. He was just kind of, you know, doing it on the side. The Gun Club was his main gig. So they were looking for a drummer, and they were actually in the process of recording Well Down Blue Highway. So they just had me in to do some um, percussion on the side. Mm. But it wasn't until Kill Tunes that I actually was playing drums with the group. Yeah. Okay. And you did some touring with the Leaving Trains? Mm, not so much. We toured a bit on the West Coast. And then, actually, um, I left the band before Kill Tunes was even released. Oh. But then um, they needed a drummer for a tour to promote that album. So I, I jumped in, but um, I didn't even last that long in the tour. I think we only played, like, Rhode Island boston and dc and then i, I had a conflict with um falling james the yeah. singer james moreland right which was also the reason i left the band i just i, I loved the guy's lyrics and i thought he was an amazing songwriter and everything but i just well, we just couldn't get along so um yeah that's what happened with that group okay. but not that much touring and the tour across the u.s is in many 
way is kind of a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Both before and after you left, or the tour, I'm assuming? Well, it was a pretty tumultuous group. I mean, by the time I did the U.S. tour, the Holfer brothers, uh, Tom and Manfred, who were the original members, right. had also quit the band. <laughs> so it was just uh, James Moreland and then two other guys he'd recruited and myself filling in the gap. So it was kind of a... It wasn't really a band at that point. It was, I don't know, it was kind of, yeah, we're kind of just winging it. Hmm. But um, I know yeah. you played with Sylvia later on. Is that how you met her, through the Leaving Trains? Yeah, I think it is. Um, of course, uh, she was befriended with all those people. They grew up in the same neighborhood in Los Angeles, um, Pacific Palisades. It's on the west side of town near the ocean. Okay. And, yeah, I, I, I met up with her few times, but I didn't actually play with her till much later when I was living in Berlin. And she'd also moved over there. This was in the 90s. Right. I lived in Berlin from beginning of 90 to around the end of 98. And uh, she was living there and, you know, doing her thing. And she, at some point she was recording a two Damascus record and she needed a drummer. So I, I think at that time she wasn't even living in Berlin yet. She was in Holland. So I went over to Holland and recorded with her then, you know. Okay, so what did you do after the leaving trains? After the leaving trains, um, I'm trying to think. Actually, before the leaving trains, I'm trying to get my chronology straightened out so that you, I can understand how I actually met up with all these people. I was <laughs> playing with David Roback and Kendra Smith oh. in a group they called Opal, and this became later Mazzy Star without Kendra and right. without myself. So that was just previous to the trains and I only recorded one track with them which came out later on a compilation a Sid Barrett compilation but after the trains I was playing with a band called Downy Mildew it's hard to describe them really nice music two singers woman and a man um, and a bass player and I was playing drums Velvet Underground uh, a kind of direction right. very um, melodic but a bit dark and I did a record with them, and we played a bunch of shows around Los Angeles. Okay. Um, so that was the group. That was the group I was playing in when um, I met Joe Biza, and it was at that time we were living in the same kind of uh, it was a, a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. It was actually an old transient hotel, which an artist had bought and then started renting to musicians and artists and writers. Oh wow! And below this hotel. Yeah, below this hotel was a place called Al's Bar. Right, yep. Which was kind of the epicenter, or one of the epicenters at that time in Los Angeles for like um, current music, um, you know, um, independent music. And so there were always bands playing down there. And, and I think I would pass Joe in the stairs as I slept my drums up to my room at night and see him on the street sometimes. But I think the, actually the first time he heard me was me playing with uh, Downey Mildew. By this point, when you're meeting Joe Beiser, have your musical tastes expanded at all? Are you starting to get into jazz? Or were you already well, into jazz? I was, already, I was already into jazz because actually when I started playing, one of my guiding lights, how I wanted my sound to be, was Ed Blackwell. It wasn't so much the music, but the way his drums sounded, just this ah, so melodic and expressive and, and really happy and beautiful, and I wanted to play like that man. But of course, I loved the music too. And through liking his sound, I, I came in um, I came in contact 
with a lot of that kind of music. Um, I was also listening, I remember when I was like 19, listening to Interstellar Space. Right. Uh, not sorry, um, I'm sorry, I meant the, the Coltrane record with Rashid Ali, the duo. Um, right. I forget the title now, but I was still, yeah, I was still at that, even at an early age, I was really into things like that or people like Zev, um, who were kind of, you can't really categorize them. So I, I, my tastes were really already all over the map. I mean, I loved everything from right John Coltrane to to the Gun Club, right. <laughs> everything in between. So, but I think by the time I met Biza, I felt like I wanted to do more um, open-ended playing, more improvisation, and um, not as much like songs. Although later on, I did return to songs with with groups like um, Trotsky, Ice Pick. At some point, do you and Joe have a conversation about wanting to, to do more improvising and like starting something? Uh, I think um, we just probably rapped about, you know, what kind of music we liked in general. And we didn't really have a plan. I think Joe, you know, in those days, you couldn't play in a bunch of different projects. It was like you had your band. Right. And you had to, <laughs> it was like your thing. You had to, you know, it's like being in a gang or something. You had to be loyal to these people. And, so he didn't really, he felt, I think he felt a bit hemmed in by the Sacklin Trust thing. I mean, I thought they were still great, but I guess, you know, he was a bit tired of it and he wanted to try something different. And it, I don't think he was in a position where he could still continue with Sacklin Trust and start another group. For what reasons? Maybe lack of energy or time or just like I said, in those days, you really had to be in your own group. Right. So. At that point, I guess he dissolved Sacrin Trust, and uh, he and I and a um, friend of his uh, on guitar, Paul Urias, and a, a bass player, I don't know where he came from, Mike Demers, Yeah, he found. You know, I think it was just that record, which we eventually recorded, was just a way to get him going away from um, Sacrin and start another project. Yeah. So in your mind, was it going to be a project, or was this like a Joe Biza thing? Well, that's, it's hard to say right now. I mean, that, that record was actually called Joe Biza and the Universal Congress of, so it's kind of like a solo project and the Universal Congress of, I guess it could have been anyone he at the time wanted to have playing that. So I don't know if at that time I really felt like it was going to be a, a band band, but I think once the record came out, it, it became clear that um, we wanted to move forward with it. And also the other musicians, they, for various reasons, which I won't mention here, but they just couldn't continue with the project. Right. So we had to look for other musicians, and that's when he got Steve Moss, who had been playing in Saccharin, and another guy I met um, on the scene in Hollywood, um, Ralph Gutowski, uh, Ralph um, playing bass. He, we, we roped him in, yeah. The two tracks that you recorded for, for this uh, first album... Were these something uh, tracks you had like rehearsed? Oh yeah, we rehearsed them a lot. Yeah. Um, did you play them live <laughs> before you recorded? We did. <laughs> the thing is, yeah, we did play them live, and I'm not sure if we played them live before we recorded or afterwards. I do remember playing them live. Uh, I think we played twice with Mike Watt on bass okay. because by the time we were finished recording, I think the original bass player wasn't able to continue. And yeah, we did. We played once at the Lhasa Club with Mike and once on uh, a radio s station, we did a live set. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wonder if there's any tapes of that 
floating around? I think there must be from the radio show. Yeah. Um, and I have to ask my friend Devin Sarno. He was hosting that show. He must have a recording of that. Hmm. And my memory of that is really strong still. It was a very exciting set. Um, and that, but, that one had, uh, Mike, had Watt on bass? Yeah, hmm. it was great. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, that guy's so busy. Yeah. And he had so many projects that it's it was clear that he couldn't continue. Yeah. Um, so we had to find um, other people. That's when Gordetsky came came in on on bass and and Moss came in on saxophone. Yeah. I guess I'm just what I'm wondering is how improvised even the recording of this was. Was it pretty structured or was it was there jamming in the studio? It's structured. I mean, we record we rehearsed it and we. Each piece on each side had different parts we would go through, but the length of the parts and how it would how would we get to them was kind of open. So we had like touchstones within each piece we would get to, which would bring us to the next part of the piece. Right. But it's pretty loose, and of course we had to keep in mind at that time that it was for a record. So we're looking at you know eighteen to nineteen twenty minutes max for each side. So this was also in the back of our minds that we had to keep it somehow concise. So it's, it's very much jamming, but it also has a structure. Yeah. Do you know if you did it more than once in the studio? You know what? I think we didn't. I might be wrong. It's a long time ago, but I'm pretty sure it was just one take on each side. Yeah. Yeah. The date on the LP just lists, lists one recording session on May 30th. So the assumption is that was this was basically recorded and probably even mixed in the in the one session. That's very possible. I mean, of course, we were on a really tight budget. I'm pretty sure SST paid for it. Aside from maybe a false start on one of the pieces, I think we just basically played each piece through, and then, like you say, I think we actually mixed it on that same day. Yeah. Do you recall overdubs? No, we didn't do any overdubs, um, as as far as I know. I'm pretty much sure we just recorded it live to tape. And then did you tour after this record came out? For this record, we didn't tour at all. We just did those, as far as I remembered, those two shows. And then we kind of concentrated on getting the the, the project going as a, a real band. So then we had Ralph Gordansky along and uh, Steve Moss. And then we started then, Ralph and Joe were writing material. We also had some covers. So we started then rehearsing regularly and uh, getting ready to record the next record. Kind of with the idea of maybe having some more uh, structured songs or like there's even vocals, I think, on the on the next record. Yeah. These pieces on the next record were very open-ended. They had kind of a jazz affinity. Sometimes we'd play ahead and then each person would have a solo section. So... When we played them live, it's very elastic. It could go much longer than the record. And of course, again, the record, we were um, compromised, if you will, by the nature of the medium, which was LP length. Right. But when we did these live, they, the songs could go much, much longer. It just sometimes we had guests play along with us, other horn players or you know anyone who we thought could work. So we weren't interested in just playing the songs like they were on the record. Right, for sure. Do you know uh, anything about David Amico, if I'm saying that right, who did the artwork for the LP? It seems like he had a, you know, a, like a bit of a career around L.A. as an artist. That's right. Um, 
at that time, he was a, a friend of Joe's, and I only met him once. And apparently, like you say, he did have a career. He was successful as an artist, but I haven't really followed his work since then. So I don't know what he's doing now. Um, I couldn't say, you know. But I loved the cover, and, and I saw some of his, uh, of his other work at that time, which I also really thought was good. Yeah, it's a great cover. How did you end up hooking up with the Trotsky Ice Pick dudes? Well, Venus Madre used to run a, a studio called Lyceum Sound, and uh, this is where the Leaving Trains recorded some of the tracks for Kill Tunes. I think one track was recorded there. He was in that kind of whole scene in L.A., of course, I'm not sure if you know about this, but he played in The Last. Yeah, I knew that. Which yeah. was one of the the early punk psychedelic groups. I think their first record was in 76 with Bump. Yeah. And he knew all these people. Um, in There was kind of a scene, they, they called it, um, what did they call it back then, the... Uh, Paisley Underground, yeah. kind of a stupid name. <laughs> but he was friends with all these people. A lot of them lived on the west side of Los Angeles in um, Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades. And they all knew each other. So he knew he knew um, James and the Manfred, Manfred and, and Tom Hofer, and he knew the Robacks and all those people. So I think the first time I met him was when we recorded that one piece at his studio um, for... Um, kill tunes okay yeah he definitely seems to be kind of a common denominator with some of these recordings i believe he was involved in the cruel cruel frederick project not only did i mean <laughs> vetus when he had his studio going he he moved the studio uh to another house later which is where cruel frederick and trotsky and universal congress have recorded right. but also many other groups i mean he he's kind of like this um, mad genius, and um, he had so many people recording his studio. I can't even, I don't even know. It's, it was just like nonstop for about five years. It wasn't even really a commercial studio in that sense. It was just like this um, something he liked to do. He had another job, but he had this studio in his garage. It wasn't like, you know, just some DIY studio. It was like the real deal. Um, very professional, but he had everyone playing in there, and it wasn't really even a matter of money. It was if he liked the project, he would have you in. And right. so um, I'm not sure who else um, was in there, but yeah, for sure, Cruel Frederick and Leaving Trains um, in the first studio and um, Congress. Yeah. Did you know Lynn Johnston already from Slovenly? I'm sure you guys crossed paths on the road, perhaps played some shows together. Actually, I knew. I was good friends with the guys in Slovenly, but Lynn was mostly playing with them as a studio musician. Right. And by the time I knew Slovenly, they were living up in the Bay Area, and so Lynn couldn't really play with them much anymore. So I'm pretty sure, I'm not sure how I met Lynn. It might have been through Slovenly. They might have given me his number because he'd have these weekly um, improv sessions at his house. He had like a little house in back of his parents' house, and in his living room, people would show up and 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 play, and he would play records, and we'd hang out. So I'm not really sure how I hooked up with him, mm. but I assume it is through Slavin. Yeah. Did the Cruel Frederick album kind of come out of those jams? Absolutely, because he would have some people 
come over. There were like regulars like Guy Bennett, the bass player who was on um, the crew of Frederick Record, or, or Jacob Cohn, who was playing saxophone. So I, somehow I coalesced into this kind of working group, and we had songs we were playing, mostly covers, but there were other people showing up for sessions. Sometimes Mike Watt would show up or Jack Wright, this kind of famous um, improvising saxophone player from the States, or anyone basically who Lynn thought would be interesting would show up. But somehow, like I say, it coalesced into this one project with, with the idea that we would record and maybe play shows around as well. And did you do that? We did. We played, we just played in Los Angeles, and sometimes we'd play double bills with Congress. Yeah, we did play a bit. It wasn't like a heavy, tour, a heavy um, gig group. I think Lynn... Lynn wasn't that much interested in playing out, and I think the other people in the group all had, you know, their jobs, and right. so time was a bit short. But we did play out a bit, you know. By the time the second uh, Universal album comes out, are you are you starting to tour by that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. We With... toured on that. SST gave us a bit of an advance. We bought a van. <laughs> got on the road and we we toured quite a bit um my memory's a bit hazy how many we toured several times across the u.s and canada i don't know the chronology right now um but for that first record we definitely toured a couple times and um and like what kind of gigs yeah. are you playing Whew. you know at that time there it, it was kind of a, a fluid situation we we'd play it anywhere for anyone, I mean, we had people at SST booking for us, so sometimes uh, we'd play in places which were pretty kind of straight ahead, punk rock, if you want to say, yeah. which was our energy. We, we came across wherever we played, you know, we could play in a, a, a punk venue and people would dig it because we had this kind of energy. Right. But the, obviously, harmonically and everything was kind of like not really what these people are maybe used to hearing. But because our energy was like that, they could still get into it. So we'd play in you know DIY places, more kind of established clubs. Um, we played in CBGBs, really the whole spectrum. I mean, we never got into like really huge venues right. until maybe we got into we got to Europe. But in the states, it was kind of yeah, you know, smaller venues, DIY spaces, art spaces, that kind of thing. What did happen when you got over to Europe? I, we did talk to Joe at one point, and I seem to recall him telling me that Germany was a good good country for for you guys. Well, the time we played at CBGB's, there was a woman there, uh, Jutta Kutter, from Spex Magazine, which is kind of like the German spin. Right. And she interviewed us, and concurrent with that interview, we'd been like voted that the record at that time, which was... Um, this is our music as an EP yep. was voted as the second, I think was number two on their year end list. Wow. So this, this kind of put us over in Germany and, um, that was the first tour we played in Europe. It was like, I don't know, 40 gigs, 45 gigs. And I guess around 40 of them were in, or 35 of them were in Germany. Wow. So people loved us there. <laughs> we played, we played, even played in East Germany before the wall came down in Leipzig. We played in Berlin. We played everywhere, little towns, big towns, and um, it was yeah, it was quite a big tour. Yeah. And then you ended up moving there. I did. I, I mean, after that tour, I was kind of burned out. Um, I was, I'd been playing, you know, like 
in Trotsky and in Quill Frederick and in Congress and working a full-time job. And and with Congress, we'd go on tour for two months, maybe longer, and come home. We'd be broke, and then I'd have to look for another job. And this was going on for a few years. So after a, a cycle of this of around five years, I was kind of burned out. And the wall had just come down in Berlin, and I had a friend living there, a couple friends. And after that tour, which ended in early November 89, I went to Berlin and visited my friends. And um, I thought, okay, I just have to check this out because it's not going to last long. Right. So I, I'd already quit the band after at the end of the tour. And then um, I decided, okay, I'm going to go home, get rid of my stuff, and then come back to Berlin. Yeah. What happened when you moved there? Your discography is just insane. You've played on so many records. Like, what? I guess what was your, what? Where were you at musically? Were you were you wanting to do different stuff? I definitely wanted to do more improvisation yeah. in terms of free improvisation, which means for me, just starting, not having, not talking about what you're going to do or have any kind of structure or anything. And not because I'm against other music with structure or melody, but just because I felt like I just felt the need to do that. Yeah. So the thing at that time in Berlin, there were two scenes. There was West Berlin and there was East Berlin. And East Berlin had always uh, really supported improvised music because the way they did it there it was something different than the way we do it in the West, in the U.S. or Europe. It's like they kind of supported it because it was something very unique. And so there was this huge scene of improvisers in East Berlin and East Germany. And uh, they were all really interested to play with newcomers, foreigners like myself. Right. In West Berlin, it was different. And they were a bit, the musicians were a bit um, skeptical or they thought you were there to steal their gig. And also the music for me wasn't quite as interesting. So I ended up, when I first got to Berlin, playing with a lot of these East German improvisers and touring a lot in East Germany. And actually, Joe and I, we did a couple tours, I believe, in East Germany as a duo oh. um, at that time. So, so when I got to Germany, I was really looking forward to more open-ended playing. You know. And so, like, if people wanted to check out, you know, kind of what you did after Universal Congress of, where would you point them? What are some of the touchstones for you? Well, there was a project I had with a guy from Tokyo, Toshimaru Nakamura, which was called Repeat. We did like four CDs, I believe. And this was kind of uh, improvised music with electronics and percussion, something like This Heat, maybe. Right, yeah. But um, a bit more open-ended, if you can imagine that. So that was like a, a kind of milestone project for me, in the middle of the 90s. And there was another project which you might probably not have heard of called Cut, which was uh, initially a duo with myself on drums and percussion and a German guitar player from Hanover named uh, Berger Lowe. And I did a lot of touring with this group and it was kind of, um, ah, it's hard to describe, but it had some improvisation, but it was also pretty tightly structured. Something like, something between the Minutemen and... Uh, massacre or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so that, that group did a CD with another saxophone player added and a single. Okay. So those were kind of two projects in the 90s. And then after the 90s, start of the next uh, millennium, I was doing more with electronics. 
still working with percussion, but more and more with um, electronics at first computer and then um, uh, analog synthesizer. Oh yeah. So it's like you say, it's it's a lot of stuff. So if you if you go like on my site and look at the discography, you can look stuff up on Discogs and yeah, um, kind of find your way maybe. What about now? Have you done any anything in the last year, or are you planning anything for 2020? Well, this last year was really busy. I was traveling a lot. I was um, in India uh, for a tour with a group I've been playing with about the last 10 years called MKM, which is with Gunter Müller okay. and uh, Norbert Muslang. They all play electronics. It's improvised. Then I was in uh, South Kurdistan, Iraq, for an art project. I've been doing um, work with sound in the context of installations uh, for the last 20 years. So there was, I was doing something there uh, with a sound installation. I also performed for two weeks. I was in Iraq and um, wow. in the summer, I uh, was in the U.S. with Joe Baisa on a duo tour. Uh, he was playing guitar. I was playing drums and, and vocalizing. And then in the fall, I was in on tour in Europe with, uh, this is another project I have right now with a great percussionist from Zurich, Christian Molfart, where I play um, uh, lap, les- lap resonator guitar, slide resonator guitar, and he's playing um, snare drum. Wow. And then in uh, no- November, I was in Chile, in uh, Valparaiso, Chile, for an art project. So for next year, <laughs> I don't really have much planned because... <laughs> <laughs> this That's year a was a bit too year. much. I have, I have kids. And, yeah, it was a lot. It just kind of turned out this way. I have kids, and um, yeah, it, it was a bit too much. So for next year, I'm not sure what's coming up. Um, for sure, nothing before the summer. Yeah, just some local gigs in Switzerland. What's your website if people want to check some of this stuff out? It's just uh, my name, JasonCon.net, and um, I'm also on SoundCloud. You know, I, I post stuff there. Once in a while, from newer, newer projects, newer recordings. Right on. Um, I'm not on. I'm not on Facebook or Twitter or anything like that. But just go to my site if, if you're interested. There's a discography, and um, I'll go to Discogs or SoundCloud. That'll give you a kind of an overview. Awesome, Jason. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yep. Thanks for having me. Um, I hope this made some sense. <laughs> it did. Yeah. All right. Like we said. Uh, great guy, great interview, and so much work to do after that interview for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jason was a great guy. The thing that stood out for me was his SST pedigree. Yeah, a, a few things stood out. A that he started playing drums at age twenty-one, which probably wasn't too much before this record came out, and his playing's just gnarly on it. Yeah, but just to recap. We've talked about a few of these records already. He played on the Leaving Tra- Trains record, Kill Tunes, which is SST-71. Which he is was, awesome. Yep. He was involved with Opal, although he didn't play on SST-103, Happy Nightmare Baby. He plays on the Cruel Frederick album, which we're going to be getting to soon enough here on SST-127. Way later, he plays on a couple Trotsky Ice Pick albums, 197 baby and 246 el cabong he played with sylvia and jacosa in to damascus on the album succumb about half of it anyways 
And he also plays in this band, Downy Mildew, which I want to check out. I've never heard them. I want to check out that band he mentioned, Cut. Yeah, the, I think he describes them as a cross between the Minutemen and Massacre. Like, whoa, how yeah. how do I not know that one yet? Yeah. I th- could be wrong about this. Don't quote me on this, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> First one of 2020. <laughs> Keep them coming. Uh, but I think he might have had a record label called Cut also. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you want to start talking about the tracks? History Lesson, Part 2. So, yeah, there's three songs. A Certain Way is all of side A. It's 19 minutes long. Certain Way Continued is 10 minutes long, and it's on the B side. And then the one track we've talked about already from the No Age comp is Chasing. And as far as I can tell, like I said, Ryan, this was LP only, which is weird. They were putting everything out on cassette and CD by this point. Yeah, uh, I don't know why. It must not have done that well, and they must not have expected it to do well. Yeah, you'd think with the name Joe Biza in there, it would it would have. Plus, they yeah, were touring but, pretty hard. Yeah, but remember, when we were, every Sacred Trust al- uh, album that we've done on the show... I'm pretty sure we made note of the fact that these guys did not get their due. Like they were not, I don't think they were that well regarded during their day, Sacron Trust. And so Joe Biza's new band, I don't know. I just wonder whether that would have had that much uh, interest from people. I mean, yeah, I, mean I hope it did, but I, I kind of doubt it. What do you think? Yeah. Well, maybe not in North America. Oh, like... You know why you mentioned, like, if this came out now, people would be going apeshit? Yeah. I bet you if Universal Congress have reformed and went to play Japan, they could probably fill, like, a small stadium. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Here's what Dave Lang says in that article about um, the track Certain Way. He says, there's Certain Way Part 1, which starts with a creepy echoing drone that builds to a dense wail within a few minutes until the rhythm section comes in and Biza hits the wah-wah pedal and bends the strings whilst the others churn out a steady yet free bass of can Ashra Temple proportions. When Biza dives his guitar through the middle, you'd swear you were stuck listening to Miles, Miles's Agarta or Big Fun. It's that good. Things turn and sway for 20-odd minutes until it quiets down again for some reverb-soaked noodling, and then it's time to flip it over for part two. The proceedings are more chaotic here. Drums are thrashed, bass strings broken, and the guitars really create an almost Hendrix Chirac-like racket. Yeah, when I was listening to this, that drone at the beginning, I'm like, what is that? It sounds like an airplane. It sounds like a, a, a car. It sounds like this weird guitar groan off in the distance with and then it builds with this ambient cording and toms and then when the bass comes in with that groove and jason hits the ride cymbal all i thought was yes yeah 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 it's quite the jam man and like about 24 minutes into part one jason and mike demers uh, really get to show their chops off a little bit Jason's playing like down on the toms 
like floor toms and stuff, and it's very percussive. And the other thing I noticed is uh, the interplay between the two guitarists is really cool. Like you almost forget Paul Urias is the second guitarist, and they kind of, you know, they kind of groove together. It's interesting. I'm not other than maybe uh, October Faction. You're really not used to hearing Joe Biza play with another guitarist, you know? Yeah. No, it it works really, really well. And I couldn't find out anything about these other two dudes, Mike Demers or Paul Urias. It's amazing, too, when you look at, like, Biza and Khan's discography and compare yeah. it to these two guys. Like, what happened? Yeah. Well, that's just discogs, so who knows? So when you, when you were listening to it, and it, I'm just wondering, when I'm listening to it, there's some great stuff at the end of side one where Jason is, um, he's really working the kit. So there's some rim shots and stuff, but then there's, um, there's some interesting stuff on side two for a certain way continued. Yeah. And it's, um, we're really the drummer and bass. They get some as well. Now I had a question, um, and I know it didn't come up in the interview with Jason, but I don't know why it is, but I, when I kept on listening to this record this week, I kept on like mixing up, well, not mixing up, but just the name of the song certain way reminded me of the miles. Yeah. Uh, a silent way. Right. Yeah, for sure. And you know what I was thinking? You were talking about side one and side two. They must've been like running a stopwatch in the studio. Oh, and said, this is, uh, this is the, <laughs> this is how long we can go. Bring it down for a bit. Well, they got to bring it down for the, like the end of side one, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's a, it's a great ride. And I think that like, I'm glad that we're going to get into this universal Congress of, because it's, it's like nothing we've heard before on the yeah. show, you know, and I'm looking forward to more of it for sure. Here's what Dave Lang says about the, the, uh, the other track on here called Chasing. Chasing, yes. Okay. Chasing, part three in the concept, if you will. A perfect come down from the previous ear-bending noise and somewhat resembling Fripp Eno's great No Pussyfooting LP of 74. It's a laid-back acid guitar masterpiece that totally reeks of bong-hit jamming gone mad yet stays totally focused as an ending coda to the previous two numbers. Yeah, there's this, there's a part in this song, and it's what grabbed me on the No Age comp, where there is this really, really satisfying wash of melodic sound when the bass and drums come in. And uh, it's really, it reminds me of, it actually reminds me of some stuff by Nels Klein as well. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, loved it. Loved it. Hmm. I'd put it on the ballot result again if we hadn't already. Okay, the the cover art. David Amico. He I think Jason mentions that him and Biza were friends. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Oh, it totally fits, right? Yeah. It totally makes sense. I can't connect, you know, the visual in any s- sort of specific way with the music or the names of the songs or anything like that. But well, the, totally the, mu- the music's a piece of art. 
So it's, you know, it wouldn't work if it had a photo of the band on the cover, you know? Yeah, interesting. It, It'd be interesting to see what you think when we get to This is Mechalotics. Yeah, it needs <laughs> it needs a piece of art. And we should mention, I don't know if Jason and I talked about this, but this was engineered by a guy named Rick Novak at Control Center Studios in Hollywood, May 30th, 1986. And I don't know if we've seen Control Center Studios yet. Yeah, I don't remember it. We may have, but it doesn't ring a bell. You going to hit me with that dead wax? Are you ready for it? Yep. It's only on side A, and it says, Some are slippery, and some are evil, dot, dot, dot. Hmm. What a great package. Yeah. I, uh, and you know what? Like, I just bet you it gets passed over all the time in the shops. Yeah. I just bet you. Like, you wouldn't, it's pretty nondescript cover. For sure. And, and honestly, when I picked up my first Universal Congress of probably, I don't know, 10 years ago, I just picked it up because it said SST on the back. And I was just like, I'll still buy anything by a label, right, that I like but I had no idea what it was in for. And this is a very different album than uh, This Is Mechalotics as well. I like how on the back cover they each get their own symbol, symbol, kind of like Led Zeppelin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Oh, I like that too. Ballot result? Let's do it. Ballot result. All right. So is it going to be a certain way and a certain way continued. I think think, it's just called certain way, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're right. That's my point. Like I kept on thinking of a silent way. (laughs) I'm sure I've, I think I've been calling it a certain way too. Or in in a silent way. Um, so is it both? I think it has to be both. It's both. It's one song, man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Sometimes I don't know what your rules are. (laughs) And I, and I get all of a sudden all these rules out of left field. But yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Okay. Great record. Great intro to Universal Congress of. Great interview from Jason. Yeah, thanks, Jason, for being on the podcast. It was great having him on. Yeah, I'm just... I've said it already, but man, oh man, I can't wait to check out more of his stuff. I really liked... Uh, I should have mentioned this earlier, but I liked how he was talking about... Um, the way he approached playing drums as well too. Um, yeah. the, the expressiveness of his playing that he was in search of. I thought that was uh, a great comment and really added uh, to the experience when listening to the record. Awesome. All right, Ryan, speaking of wild ass shit on SST <laughs> that we're going to be getting into, what's next week? Whoa, it is SST 110, our first album by crazy backwards alphabet yeah we've got a special guest too uh, ryan andy west is going to be on the podcast nice hey everyone thanks for listening you can find us on facebook instagram twitter tumblr all at mojack pod we post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show our blog is mojackpod.com please check it out for some exclusive content If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email. 
to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.